0: Welcome to A History of Europe Key Battles. The Battle of the Kalka River, Part 2 of 3. Throughout the 11th and 12th centuries, the world of Kiev and Rus had grown significantly larger and more wealthy. Dynamic principalities on the outskirts, such as Vladimir Suzdal, Novgorod, and Galicia Volhynia, developed and expanded and became effectively independent from their mother city of Kiev. The downsides of the loss of Kiev as a central authority were twofold. Firstly, almost perpetual fighting between the princes of the different regions, all of whom belonged to a dynasty called the Rurikids; And secondly, the lack of unity against common enemies. The most persistent problems from outside came from the Pontic steppes, north of the Black Sea, from a tribe called the Cumans. The Cumans were turkic nomadic people, comprising the western branch of a loose confederation which spread in a wide territory from the steppes of modern-day Ukraine to Central Asia, beyond the Aral Sea. Their society was typical of the peoples throughout the Eurasian steppes based on nomadic herding. They took over the Pontic steppe after ousting the Petronegs with whom they were related, and from 1055 made regular raids into Russian lands. Over time their threat decreased as they drew closer to the Rus, serving with them in battles between the princes and marrying into Russian royal families. Yet even with the Kuman danger lessened thanks to these close relations, the steppe remained a potential source of danger unless a strong defence could be mounted. Such was the necessity in the 1220s when a new threat arrived in the shape of the Mongols. As their name suggests, the Mongols were a nomadic people who originated in Mongolia, in Central Asia. Geoffrey Husking, in his book, Russia and the Russians, describes them as typical of the Eurasian steppe heartlands, dependent on cattle for their livelihood, roaming the open plains in search for pasture for their animals, raiding sedentary societies adjacent to their lands, but also trading with them. In the late 12th century, Husking continues... An event occurred which was decidedly unusual in a nomadic society. That is, a stable system of rule was established above the tribal level. A tribal super-alliance was formed under leadership of a charismatic leader by the name of Timurjin. In 1206, Timurjin succeeded in having all Mongol and Turkic tribes of Mongolia submit to his authority, and to swear allegiance to him as the new emperor or Khan. In his new role, he adopted the name Genghis Khan, to which he is known to history. During the next two decades, until his death in 1227, the armies of Genghis Khan conquered a vast territory, stretching from northern China and Manchuria on the Pacific coast in the east, through Mongolia and southern Siberia to Central Asia and northern Persia as far as the Caspian Sea in the west. The ability to control such a vast expanse of land, writes Proverb Mugoski in his book A History of Ukraine, is attributable to the highly disciplined nature of the Mongol army and administration. For this they borrowed heavily from the peoples they conquered, in particular the Chinese. The generals who led the armies were Mongols, but the common soldiers were primarily subjects of the land they conquered, mainly Turkic people, such as the Tatars the Mongol armies quickly gained a reputation for ferocity and invincibility. Those rulers who submitted immediately and recognised Mongol rule were left to govern their respective territories, but those who resisted were dealt with harshly. Tales of the massacres of whole cities and regions were not uncommon, prompting Western sources to decry Genghis Khan as the scourge of humanity. The goal of the Mongols was not indiscriminate destruction for its own sake, but as a means of inspiring fear and convincing their enemies to submit to their overlordship. Once subjugated, the subjects could expect to be left in peace, only if they obeyed Mongol authority. Such rules were set out in the Great Yassa, the Mongol code attributed to Genghis Khan, but only compiled after his death. To help achieve his conquests, Genghis Khan also devised a strict system of military training for his followers. From the early age of five or six, a boy would learn to ride a horse and to develop the strength and endurance to allow him to ride all day. Then, as a young man, he would be required to undergo regular training in the skills of war and to make himself available for military service up until the age of sixty. The military successes of the Mongols can be put down to a number of factors. They are known to have been very careful about their preparations and to have carried out detailed reconnaissance of their enemy before engaging in battle. They also made skilful use of envoys and exploited the fear induced by their notorious reputation to encourage divisions among their opponents. On the field of battle they fought mainly on horseback using bows and arrows. According to David Nicole in his book, Calico River 1223, the cavalry units were highly disciplined and well organised. Large gaps were left between the divisions, allowing a high level of mobility. They were therefore able to alternate the deployment of heavy and light cavalry according to the situation on the battlefield. Rule over such a vast empire would not have been possible by military means alone. The great leader realised the importance of written records for administering the vast territories and large number of people, most of whom were illiterate themselves, and so for this purpose adapted a Uyghur script to the Mongol language. From China he borrowed a system of keeping a census of the population and their cattle holdings in order to help with taxation and with military recruitment. And he also improved the system of communications and postal relays. In 1211, Genghis Khan embarked on a military campaign against China, probably the wealthiest and most advanced civilization on the globe at the time. The city of Beijing fell after a lengthy siege in 1215, forcing the Jin Emperor to move his capital south and to abandon the northern half of his empire to the Mongols. From these conquests, the Mongols gained many benefits. They became able to not only exploit the great wealth of the northern China, but also learnt much about the advanced technologies of that great civilization, especially siegecraft. With these advantages, they embarked on another highly ambitious campaign into the heartlands of Eurasia. On his western frontier, Genghis Khan faced an equally ambitious rival, Muhammad, the ruler or Shah of the Khwarezmian Empire. His realm dominated most of the Eastern Islamic world, occupying the area of modern-day Iran, Afghanistan, and the Central Asian republics of Turkmenistan and Uzbekistan. That is the region east of the Caspian Sea. Conflict broke out between the Mongols and the Khwarezmian Empire for control of the rich caravan trade routes of Central Asia between the southern Urals and Lake Balkash. The merchants who travelled these lands brought with them valuable goods from the Orient, including silk, hence the name given to these routes as the Silk Roads. Another source of tension was religion. The Mongol leaders were at this time pagan, but they were tolerant of all religions and had no desire to impose their belief on others. Muhammad, on the other hand, was known as Al-Ghazi for his commitment to religious warfare against non-Muslim neighbours. It was completely unacceptable, in his view, for the wealthy Islamic provinces of Central Asia to be under threat from infidels. It is quite likely that Genghis Khan would have been happy for a trade agreement with the Khawazmian Empire, but when his envoys were not only rebuffed by Muhammad, but some were murdered, the great Khan was enraged. He gathered his most capable generals and launched a massive military campaign to seek revenge. After compiling intelligence from many sources, Genghis Khan carefully prepared his army. Among the senior figures of the army were three individuals who would play a part in campaigns further west, his eldest son, Juchi, and two of his chief military commanders, Subutai and Jebe. Shah Mohammed's early confidence soon proved very misplaced. His defences collapsed in the face of the Mongol invasion, thanks to internecine feuds and his decision to divide his army into small groups in various cities. The Mongols' conquest, even by their own standards, was brutal. After their capital, Samarkand fell, the Kharasmian court moved to Bukhara, while Genghis Khan ordered two of his generals and their forces to completely destroy the remnants of the Khwarezmian Empire, including not only royal buildings but entire towns, populations and even vast swathes of farmland. If the Mongols overran his once mighty empire, the Shah fled and desperately sought refuge, but died of plurisy on an island in the Caspian Sea. He spent his last days in such poverty that he was buried wearing only a torn shirt that had been taken from one of his servants. When Genghis Khan heard of the Shah's death, he summoned Subutai to discuss the next steps. The decision was made for Subutai and Jebe to embark on a reconnaissance mission further west. Beyond the Caspian Sea lay the western Steppes that led into Europe a region for the Mongols yet uncharted, and where the strength of the rulers was unknown. The plan was to travel around the Caspian Sea clockwise, returning in no less than two years. The resulting expedition, writes James Chambers in his book, The Devil's Horsemen, the Mongol Invasion of Europe, was, quote, to contribute more than any other to the legend of the Mongol horsemen, and to remain forever the most outstanding cavalry achievement in the history of war. The reconnaissance into Europe, led by Subutai and Jebe, began at the end of February 1221. First en route was the Kingdom of Georgia, at the time one of the strongest powers in the region. Their ruler, the young King George IV, was in the middle of planning military assistance for the upcoming Sixth Crusade. Reports that reached him suggest that the Mongol invaders were no more than pillaging bandits, so the king assembled an army to confront them, unaware of the true scale of the threat. It is probable that the Mongols did not originally intend to wage war against the Georgians. They would not have wanted to risk becoming too weakened by fighting every group of people on their travels. But perhaps, on the other hand, the wealth of the Georgians had tempted them into some occasional raiding and pillaging, something which could not be tolerated by King George. When the two armies met, the Georgian cavalry charged the slowly retreating Mongols and so were drawn into the type of classic ambush of steppe horse warriors. The Mongols waited until the enemy horses were exhausted and strung out, and then they halted and turned. Mounting the fresh horses that had been waiting for them in the rear, they made a devastating counter-attack. Most of the Georgians were massacred, and the king forced to flee to his capital, Tbilisi. In spite of their heavy defeat, the Georgians believed that they had saved their country from invasion, and inflicted heavy enough losses on the Mongols to send them back home. But Subutai and Jebe, after withdrawing for a while to reassess their tactics, made another drive up through Georgia. King George again confronted the Mongols, and despite this time keeping his army in better order than before, was again defeated, and most of his men annihilated. As the Mongols continued northwards, towards the Russian steppes, the Georgian kingdom was left with almost its entire military capabilities destroyed, and so had to plead forgiveness from the Pope for no longer being able to help the Crusaders. The Mongols then continued their journey through the Caucasus mountains, but were caught in heavy snowfall. All of the artillery and most of their supplies were either lost or had to be abandoned. In the meantime, news of the approaching Mongols reached the steppelands to the north, and the leader of the Western Tribal Kuman Federation, Khan Khotien. For khotian the Mongols were a serious threat. He knew that the Mongols, as fellow steppe nomads, would find themselves at home on the open grasslands of the Pontic Steppe, and so inevitably would want to displace his own people. So he assembled a large army and joined forces with other local tribes, including contingents of volga Bulgars, and a division of Alans called the Assetians, which he put under the command of his brother Yuri and his son Daniel. This combined force took up positions along the river Terek, at the points in which the mountain passes of the Caucasus enter the lower valleys and waited for the invaders. Subutai and Jebe now found themselves in a very difficult position. They were hemmed into narrow mountain passes and surrounded by enemies in a region they did not know. They rode out to confront the Allied forces, but with no open ground behind them in which to manoeuvre, they were unable to use their traditional tactics. So they returned to the hills and took up defensive positions. With their backs to the walls, the Mongols' only hope lay in deception. Subutai and Jebe sent an embassy to the leaders of the Kumans to try and persuade them that they were not seeking battle, but merely wanted to get home. Their generous gifts and appeals to the Cumans as brethren and fellow steppe nomads had the desired effect. The Cumans collected their bribe, left their camp, and abandoned their allies, riding away under the cover of darkness back to the steppes. With the Cumans gone, the Mughal cavalry attacked the remaining allies and destroyed them with comparative ease. Next they attacked the local villages seizing cattle and horses and chased after the Kuman army who were slowed down by the treasure they were carrying. Subutai and Jabay's forces massacred the Kuman in a great battle near the River Don and recovered what they had earlier gifted away. And so their typical Mongolian skills of diplomacy... And of dividing their enemies, they had not only extracted themselves from a seemingly impossible position, but dealt a severe blow to their main rivals for ownership of the Pontic Steps. If you would like to help contribute towards the upkeep of this podcast, I have finished setting up a page at patreon.com. That's spelled P A T R E O N.com. If you're generous enough to pledge me three dollars a month, that's about two pounds a month, you'll receive in return a number of rewards, mostly exclusive episodes. The first of these new set of episodes will cover the history of the Baltic Sea. Numerous powers competed with each other for the region, including the Danes, Swedes, Poles, Teutonic Knights and Russians of Novgorod. In the five-part series, I will talk about the Northern Crusades, which began in 1147, when the Papacy began to encourage Holy War in the Baltic to convert the native pagans to Roman Christianity. And I reach up to the Battle of Lake Peipus, 1242, also known as the Battle of the Ice, which was between the Teutonic Knights and a Russian army led by Alexander Nevsky. The battle became famous when depicted in a Soviet film of 1938 named after Nevsky. I'll add that to Patreon in a week's time. Another bonus if you subscribe to Patreon.com is you'll receive episodes earlier. The third and final part of this set of episodes on the Kalk River is already available there. Whether you subscribe or not, I wish to thank you for listening to a History of Europe Key Battles podcast. All feedback is very welcome, either via the podcast's Facebook page or by writing to me directly at carl at net. Next week, I will release in usual place iTunes, etc., the final part of the Kalka River. That's part three. Until next time, thank you. And goodbye.